0: seconds flat. Give me up. Look at Mills! Look at Mills! Look oh. at Mills! we
1: the street. Wins the 10,000 meter. Stand by for the kick of Dave Waddell. If he's got it, he could make it. I think he did it! Dave
0: Waddle wants to go in middle. This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast.
1: he broken three times. He refuses to give it. Hey, friends, welcome to mile 79 of the Seconds Flat Running podcast. I've proclaimed our guest this week the world's fastest weatherman. Tyler McCandless ran a PR of 2 hours, 12 minutes, and 28 seconds at the 2017 U.S. Marathon Championships. He has also earned a PhD in meteorology and energy risk professional certification and has worked at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. As someone who finds weather forecasting and severe storms particularly interesting, I wanted to interview Tyler for a while. I hope you enjoy our conversation about marathons, meteorology, and how pushing your limits can yield your next big racing breakthrough. Please subscribe, rate, and review, and make sure to check out our YouTube channel, Seconds Flat by Run-In. Now here's Tyler and Mile 79 of Seconds Flat. Tyler, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Hey, we are so excited to have you. I am completely fascinated by both marathoning and meteorology, so I can't think of a better guest to share some time with. Tell us about when and how your interests in both began and grew.
0: Uh, so uh, my interests in meteorology were actually there long before my interest in running. So when I was in elementary school in Pennsylvania, I got really fascinated with East Coast snowstorms. I mean, every kid wants a snow day, right? And that kind of led into this, you know, incredible fascination for the weather. And I went to Penn State, studied meteorology, got a bachelor's and master's degree, and then ended up getting a PhD in meteorology also from Penn State. So I've certainly run the full spectrum of all the different degrees in meteorology. And on the way, I was a soccer player that in uh, freshman year of high school started converting to a runner. I thought what better way to get in shape for soccer than to run track. Had a great track season as a freshman, and then as a sophomore. And then after sophomore year, I was like, you know, I should really run cross country and track. So then I transitioned from a soccer player to a full-time, you know, runner in every season of running. So I did cross country track in junior and senior high school, ran for Penn State, was an All-American in my very last race in a Penn State singlet. And then I've been racing on the roads ever since. And that was uh, 11 years ago.
1: We hear that soccer to cross country, soccer to track transition a lot. It seems to be uh, really natural. Where'd you get the encouragement to shift towards running? Was that internal, just knowing, hey, I have some potential here for the future? Did you have coaches along the way who encouraged it?
0: That's a great question. I don't know if I've actually ever been asked that. I think it was just something in my mind that I could get really, really fit and I was somebody on the field who was always hustling, whether I was midfield or forward, I was, you know, running up and down the field. I was always being very as aggressive as you can be in the different drills and practices and just wanted to be as good as I could be and thought, well, if I run track, how could I be in better shape than, you know, running miles and doing intervals and lifting weights? And that was really the impetus. And then my my first track race, I absolutely loved it. I got to run a relay race and it was a team sport. And it just it was very easy to see the a linear progression in running, um, especially when you're starting out and you're just getting into the sport. And it's very easy to see improvement and that improvement just builds positivity and it really makes you love the sport. When soccer is a little more different where sometimes you need to be lucky to be in the right place at the right time, whether or not you're getting playing time and that can be hard as you move up in age groups or move from JV to varsity. So it the running... It, It's very easy to get hooked and to fall in love with it with when both of them are down to a lot of hustle and a lot of hard work and great fitness.
1: I like that you pointed out track and cross country as team sports. So often outsiders perceive them as individual. And I think in many ways they are the epitome of team sports because you can't hide anyone when we got to score points and, and everyone counts. You know, in, in soccer, you might be able to, to hide somebody a little bit. I have a basketball background. It's a little easier to tuck somebody off in the corner, but you're right. Every individual counts in the purest sense of what it means to be a team. Uh, where did you grow up in Pennsylvania? Near Allentown, a small town called Northampton. So up, uh, that's northeast, right? Northeast part of the state? Yeah, east-northeast. So you guys were probably getting hit by some of those nor'easter snowstorms, right? Is that what sparked the interest there?
0: Yeah, like the blizzard of 96 and 90, the Superstorm of 93. I can, you know, vividly remember those even though I was a pretty young kid at the time. Um, It's also like right at the borderline where you get a lot of those snow to rain, rain to snow. If the storm goes just a little further south or a little further north, it can really impact how much snow comes. So there's a lot of uncertainty with weather forecasting in that area. I think that was part of the the spark of excitement for it was that it was hard to forecast well. You couldn't just say two to four inches and be right 100 percent of the time. There were times where it was a major bust and other times where you wound up with 10 inches of snow. So I think as a kid, I I just found that really fascinating. And of course, every meteorologist dreams of being on TV a little bit. So that that (laughs) kind of is fun, too.
1: All right, I'm going to go back to the running and hold off on the weather stuff for a little while or else I'll never get through any of the running stuff. You mentioned Penn State's All-America career there, also a great meteorology school. Afterward, you moved west to Boulder and pursued the marathon. What drew you to the 26.2 mile distance?
0: I think it was just as simple as in high school, I probably every kid that is similar to me or most kids you think you're going to be a miler i transitioned to the 3200 was my best event by far and then in college the 10k was my best event and all the workouts that were longer i tended to do better in so after the all american 10,000 meter i wanted to get into the usas but i had like just missed the time and you know they try to fill the field and Unfortunately, I wasn't selected that year, so I did some road races like the Utica Boilermaker, uh, Buffalo Chase 4-Miler, and I just loved the roads. And I was like, well, if and I did a San Francisco half marathon in my first um, kind of bigger half marathon after graduating in Iran, like 105.01, and I was like, I can double this and run 210 in the marathon someday. Yeah, you know, I was totally naive. I had never run a long run over like 16 or 17 miles, but it, I think that that was, it just was in my mind's eye that I could be very, very good at the marathon um, and follow that pursuit and that dream after college. Do you have a favorite road race? Oh, that's really hard. Uh, It depends on favorite in what way. So the Kauai Marathon and Half Marathon is a very special place in my heart. I've been there nine times. Uh, It used to be very competitive. Now I go and try to connect more with the community and get kids running. The uh, Keiki run the day before, I'm dressed in a chicken suit, leading these kids on these races and seeing them smiling faces and enjoying the sport is like uh, one of the most amazing experiences. In terms of like competitive ones though, there's like the Boilermakers, one where the streets are lined with spectators. It's a July race in Utica, New York. It's phenomenal. Uh, Cherry Blossom Ten Miler is another really great competitive ten-mile race. And then some marathons that I've really liked: uh, Twin Cities Marathon. It feels like your hometown race. The crowds are out there. It's been the National Championships a couple times. Same thing with California International Marathon is another great one. I've had two really good races there. Um, So there's a lot of different reasons to to love different races. The Naples Half Marathon, I became good friends with the organizers. I love going down there flat in January and being able to just go rip a half. So there's a, a lot of special races for different reasons. There isn't just like one race that's a specific favorite.
1: A lot of good recommendations in there.
0: Yeah, I think so.
1: Yeah, I read one of your blog posts from after the 2018 Chicago Marathon. And you wrote a beautiful quote. First, the marathon will teach you humility. Second, the marathon will test your character. Finally, the marathon will always inspire you. Could you expand on each of those points a little bit for us?
0: Yeah, the marathon is such a a beast to tame. And my marathon before that was California International Marathon when I ran 2.12, finished second, and I ran just a beautiful race. I perfectly executed to my race plan, ran inspired, ran really tough. It's the race I'm probably most proud of in my career, and you think, great, I've made this big next step. My training goes even better going into Chicago. I'm like, I'm going to go run, you know, 2.10 to 2.11. I'm going to really stamped my name as a contender for the 2020 Olympic team and a few things happened that went wrong in the race it was wet I felt like I was slipping a little bit you know I got stuck kind of in no man's land I probably should have been a little bit more aggressive and just gone with the leaders a little bit so there was a few things that just didn't go right and then all of a sudden um After being stuck in no man's land, Yuki, who had won the Boston Marathon relatively recently in the last 18 months, him and I end up running like eight miles together and push each other. And I run 216, which on a wet and relatively windy day, it it was not what I wanted. But if he had not come alongside of me, I would not have been as inspired to push as hard as I did. So, you know, I left that race feeling like I trained so well going into it. And I felt like the mental prep, the physical prep was all there. But on the race day, I didn't execute as well as I could have. Things didn't fall into place. Uh, and sometimes there's just luck involved with racing 26.2 miles like some days you you just don't have a good day and you can't really put a finger on it so you have to take that take the lessons learned and build towards the next one with even a greater level of of inspiration and excitement and you can't let those those days really get you down and also you need to remember to celebrate the good ones when you do hit it out of the park it's a a more rare occurrence than in other events so you can race more frequently so I think just keeping that that positivity um, even when things don't go well and celebrating when they do is just really important
1: Mm, that's such a great perspective are you building toward another one now
0: that's a really good question something in the fall I think all spring races have kind of been cut or postponed Uh, at this point it's hard to really put a specific marathon in. I would like to do a relatively big marathon, if not a major. But it depends on what excites me, what fields are open, what the COVID restrictions are in each area. Um, But this fall, I would really like to get after another marathon.
1: You mentioned CIM 2017, your personal best, uh, U.S. Marathon Championship, second place finish. Just before that race, I listened to a conversation with your coach, Steve Jones. And he mentioned that several years of consistency made him believe you could go sub-214, and you were almost 90 seconds faster than his prediction. Tell us about the training in that period and, and what made you believe uh, excuse me and, and what you believe made that consistency possible.
0: Mm-hmm. Jonesy is a phenomenal coach. One, the Consistency is absolutely the most important when it comes to marathon training. It's more important than any specific workout or any specific mileage. It's not just a week of training. It's not just several weeks of training. It's several years of training to really get into that fitness level to be able to achieve the next level that you're shooting for so in that you know specific build up that year of time i mean i was coming off one of my worst marathons i've run at the new york city marathon um, and i took a longer break than normal and then basically took a year where i built up to that race and i started with shorter and faster races and then progressively increased mileage and we do generally two to three hard workouts a week and I just kept being consistent and building. I'd do a race approximately every month, let that be a positive momentum towards the next race. I had some really good races in the buildup. I ran 47, 50 something for a 10 miler in Pittsburgh, I ran around 104 flat and a half marathon. Um, and I had an eight mile race that was like 38 minutes. Races that I was like, all right, I'm consistently running you know, low, 450 or 440 something pace for eight miles to a half marathon, I felt that I could be in great shape to run close to five flats over the course of a marathon. So my confidence was just sky high from the consistent training, the races that I had done before it. Then my last long run, I did an eight mile race that was 10 days out, so it was on Thanksgiving. The day afterwards, I did a long run, I ran two hours and 12 minutes. I came back from the run. I put my watch down and I was like, that's a marathon time. I'm going to run in nine days. And then I did. Like, I just had that in my mind's eye. I had visualized it really well because I had that consistency. And we do very similar workouts. So, as each building block, we do a lot of five minute reps, a lot of three minute reps, a lot of 10 minute reps. All of these I've done for the eight and a half years that I've been with Jonesy. So it's not hard to be able to be like, well, you're running a lot faster with more control than you have in the past. You're capable of more. How much more is the question of how well you execute on race day and how tough you are. And Jonesy's very good at inspiring you to not set limits on just how much faster you can run. Mm.
1: Yeah, it was maybe a a perfect execution, sticking to the race plan and uh, everything playing out to just what you had visualized on that watch nine days earlier. Describe the feelings and emotions that go through your mind late in that race as you posted a huge PR.
0: Yeah, it was a very, very special moment. Um, The way the race played out, it's cim in 2017 and 2018 and i think to a degree in 2019 as well you had such a big pack of guys and 2017 was the first time it was a national championship you know parker takes it out super fast everyone just lets him go and i'm just with that chase group john gray at one point makes a big move to try to catch parker i just kind of sat with that second group we would be trading off the leads dan tapio led a lot of it early on And I just tried to stay as relaxed as I could. And then all of a sudden at 19 and a half miles, we're still in the pack. John Gray and Parker are still way ahead. And I saw Tim Ritchie come up alongside of me. And I knew Tim Ritchie was really fit. I've been racing him for a while. He's a great competitor, really tough guy. And I just felt like it was my time to make a move. And at that point at 19 and a half, I took off. And Kia Dandina went with me. Tim sort of went with me, not quite And it was just like the greatest emotion because there's not a whole lot that goes through your mind other than you know you're flying, you're running really well. I didn't have to look at my splits to know that I was on pace for just a phenomenal race. And we passed John Gray at 21 miles. And then, I mean, Parker was coming back to us so fast from 22 and a half to when we passed him just after 23. I just put a step on Kia Dandina take the lead for probably 15 steps and then Tim Ritchie goes by. So then I was like, okay, I got to hang on to Tim Ritchie. I got three miles here. I got a chance to win a national championship. And ultimately he slightly pulled away and elongated that, that lead to about 30 seconds by the finish. But that last like mile and a half, I was both like excited looking ahead at Ritchie, hoping that I'm able to rally and also running scared. Cause I know I got, 50 guys that are not too far behind. It was a very competitive field. So it, the emotion of actually, to get at your question, the emotion of what it was like didn't really hit me until crossing the finish line, uh, seeing my wife down the, the final straightaway, hearing her cheer, pumping a fist at, at her, and then crossing the finish line and seeing her and being able to give her a kiss. It was like, that was where it kind of all came together where it was like, I just ran exactly what I had hoped and finished in second place which i was just extremely proud of um and i was just proud that i made a move there was other races in the past where i hadn't been the one who made the move and i let the race go and then you don't get the adrenaline rush so that real emotion kind of comes in in those you know minutes hours and days afterwards when you're really proud of how you performed and executed to to achieve your goal which doesn't always happen
1: yeah, we've had Tim Ritchie on the show, and he describes a very similar experience of that magical day. And as you just said, it wasn't so much about the time or the place, but the pride that came with such a well-executed race and this kind of flow state that you get into late in a run like that, where it feels like anything is possible. So a really cool phenomenon that hopefully every marathoner at some point can feel and achieve at least once. Uh, we recently spoke with another athlete from Coach Jones's group, Ian Butler, and he mentioned the value of Jonesy's run on feel approach rather than getting caught up in what a GPS watch might say. How did that help you in racing?
0: Yeah, Excellent question. And I definitely agree a lot with Ian and of course with Jonesy, our leader. We don't do a lot of set distances except if we're on the track. So if we're on the track, you know, we might be doing, we did 12 by 500 last week. We're doing 600 this week. You know, that's measured. It's, you know, what pace you're running each time you have a split. But when we're out in the roads. He doesn't want us to be looking and being like, oh, in this five minute rep, I'm halfway through and I'm at 4.45 pace. He just wants you to push to new limits. And that's really where you make big breakthroughs is you run really hard. We don't do very many controlled efforts. Controlled efforts are more so in like race week buildup or the next workout after a race. But it's really about just being very aggressive and, pushing yourself in those workouts to to make the next step and ian's very good at that he's a a competitor through and through he knows how to push his uh his his limits to new limits and i think that's just something special that jonesy brings as a coach and as a former athlete himself as a world record holder was he wasn't afraid to blow up in workouts to give it his best shot and That's how you make really big improvements. And there's times to be calculated and smart and, you know, running more controlled and trying not to go too fast. But when you're really trying to make that next level and have that breakthrough, you you can't be controlled very much in your hard workouts.
1: Yeah. That's really interesting. Have you watched some of those eighties races that, that he was in and seen his tactical approach?
0: Uh, Everyone, and I think uh, the best way to summarize Jonesy is he, in Chicago, when he won and ran 208, and he took it out in like 101.44. In this might have been in about 2016. One of the athletes in our group at the time, Stephen Pfeiffer, there was just the Chicago marathon or one of the major marathons, and somebody took it out in sub 61 minutes. And Pfeiffer goes to Jonesy, Hey Jonesy, do you think you would have gone out with uh, Kipchoge and in, in that race and gone through and you know sixty forty five? And Jonesy's reply was, "I don't see why not. It was just like <laughs> so classic of like why would you set limits on yourself? Like why was why was sixty one forty five the right pace to go out on? Why is sixty forty like you need to try? And you know the marathon, you have to be relatively smart. It's not like you know a shorter distance race. It, if you go out too hard, it can really blow up at you. But like, if you also never go out fast, you'll never know how relatively fast you can run. So I think that's just an important mental aspect that Jonesy brings to, to all of us in the group.
1: Yeah, that leads me to wonder when you look at the 70s, 80s racing style of a lot of guys like Steve Jones around the world who really attacked the distance, Maybe a more recent great example is like a Sammy Wanjiru a decade plus ago. Uh, Today, we seem to have come to perhaps a new golden era of marathoning, like the, the first one we were in 30, 40 years ago. And there might be greater depth to the field of marathoners and people putting up great times. But I'm not sure that the general field is taking the amount of risk they did back then. And then add in the differences in technology and training. Just think about the shoes. So Steve Jones feels like this hybrid of the old school guy who has had a ton of success in the present. How does that, when you're in workouts, then manifest itself of just keep pushing your edge? We're not so worried about a specific time or or, uh, a pace. Or control as you said, where's the mental focus as you just continue to push that edge?
0: Yeah, you really need to, to finish the workout and just feel like you ran really hard and as long as you're accomplishing that, you're working towards becoming a better athlete and a better person through the pursuit of excellence. And Jonesy's very good at making sure that you continue to push that edge. And that he loves saying no coasting. He's happy to ride up alongside you on the bike and kind of just like whisper that in your ear where you like <laughs> just kind of get him saying like coasting, and you're like, ah, okay, I need to like try pushing a little bit more. Um, there was a, a girl in the group who came up to Jonesy in one of her first workouts before it started and was like, so how hard is this? And he's just like, you have a lot to learn. <laughs> it's just like you need to you need to really push very very hard. And I think that's one of the beauties of those guys back in the '70s and '80s. I think I've I've really idolized them getting into the sport uh, even a decade ago into road racing was they weren't afraid to take risks. And at that point, there weren't as much you know social media and online platforms for them to get criticized he would talk about how he did a 10k in the morning a 10k in the afternoon and his coach didn't find out about it until like athletics weekly came out you know the two weeks later or something like that and you know he kind of got hand slapped for doing two races in one day but that was like there wasn't this fear of oh what happens if i have a bad race Mm -hmm. Uh, I've had plenty of bad races, and honestly, the bad races I've learned the most from. So I think that's just kind of the mentality that Jonesy tries to impart on us: is that you know, in workouts, it's okay if if you push so hard that you know you fade on that rep or you fade on the last several reps. You tried something faster and harder and better than you ever have before, and if you keep bringing that day in and day out with the overall grand. Uh, bigger picture of that you're recovering and you're able to continue to improve off those workouts. You know, our workouts are not so long. It's not like he's like, all right, 10 by a mile, go rip the first one and hang on. It might be like four by five minutes or six by three minutes. And as we get longer into marathon training, maybe it becomes six by five minutes and eight by three minutes. But altogether, they're not a a very large amount of volume so you're able to push that envelope and sometimes push that envelope three times a week so that you're getting more harder gains but less total volume in a given session
1: it's a fascinating approach it's marathoning meets life that if there's a fear of failure you may never find out what your true limit is that's great stuff Okay, let's pivot to the stuff all of us science geeks are here for. What is your favorite weather phenomenon? <laughs> uh,
0: well, if you asked the fourth grade, Tyler, I would have said those snowstorms. But after shoveling over two feet of heavy, wet snow last week, I don't know if snowstorms are my favorite anymore. Uh-huh. I think it's that, like, blue sky day with 70 degrees might be my favorite weather phenomenon. <laughs> Yeah, I, I will say I do love a good uh, summer thunderstorm here in Colorado, and the, especially if it's not right overhead, if you're able to watch it from a distance, the the cloud is just phenomenal to look at. And we've seen some amazing ones in the evening where you just see that lightning lighting up the sky. It's pretty cool.
1: So I'm taking a little tangent here, but you mentioned the, the snowstorms, the lightning. Are you also interested in uh, natural disasters, those kind of things?
0: Uh, not so much. A lot of the meteorology I do now is very applied in the energy space. So I'm a data scientist for a company called eSource and we work with utilities to help improve reliability. So a lot of taking weather data to understand where their real risk is on their system and how they could like trim trees along power lines or reduce risky um, power lines for wildfire risk mitigation and things like that. So a lot of the the excitement that I have for meteorology is much more applied now. And it's really neat that it's having like a societally benefit and impact that's tangible. I mean, if less people have power outages because you're able to provide a very data-driven technique, it, that gets me really excited. So I'm less about like the theory and kind of understanding the cloud dynamics that I was in college. And I'm more excited about doing something that's like impactful for, uh, impactful for the world.
1: Yeah, you're living in the practical, and I'm uh, taking you out into into the theoretical. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, though. uh, The type of stuff you're doing is where some of our modern weather forecasting came from, like tornado bulletins for Air Force bases in the Plain States, where we had very little capability of forecasting this stuff and realized practically, we need to start figuring this out because we have huge risk factors.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it's it's pretty obvious that there's there is climate change going on, and I think more globally the question is how how are things going to be changing not just next week but in the next coming years, and that is in itself just such a really fascinating problem to try to to solve. And with computational improvements, we're able to now run computer models that go out not just two weeks but go out years and decades. So it's how do you get the right dynamics and the right forcings within those models so that it's an accurate depiction of what it's going to be like in 2064. It's a very challenging problem right now.
1: Yeah on that note when we model just say a simple forecast we all as runners we look at the weather whether it's a week out from a big race and we want to know what that day might look like or just the night before a long run and we're worried about rain or snow or humidity whatever it might be given all the factors that go into that modeling how far out in advance do you think we've gotten to now where we can trust with a, a high degree yeah that weather forecast is probably going to be fairly accurate that's a great question
0: i think A week out, you're starting to get a pretty good picture of what it's likely to be. And each type of forecast or each weather phenomena would have a different level of uncertainty. So for example, that snowstorm that we had that produced over two feet of snow, it was forecast 10 days out in the model as being a big snowstorm. Now, in that 10-day period before it happened, the weather models changed from days where it showed 60 inches of snow to days where it showed six inches of snow so each weather model run that happens approximately every six hours when the new weather observations are ingested and the models rerun it changes so it's like you can't you can't necessarily say you know at this certain time period all of a sudden you know the accuracy really improves it really depends If you're a week out and it's forecast to be clear sky and sunny for five days around it, you can have pretty good confidence that it's gonna be sunny and nice weather at that time. So it really depends. There's been storms that have been forecast and then three days out, all of a sudden, the system kind of gets pushed too far south and it ends up being a a beautiful day. So there's certainly uncertainty even just a, a couple days out. But I think once you start getting within a week, you can be a little bit more confident that the general pattern is going to be right. And then the actual details get, you know, more focused in as you get within a few days.
1: What are the most difficult weather conditions you've ever raced in?
0: Oh, that's a very good question. So off the top of my head, um, There was one year in the Kauai Marathon where it rained so hard that my watch stopped working. (laughs) That was a little challenging. Um, That was just like one of those Hawaii type, you know, downpours for one mile. Other people in the race didn't even experience rain. That was pretty wild. Mm. Um, And then in Colorado, I've done some local races. One was a quicker, Quaker 5K, and it was like five degrees at the start. And it's just how do you wear the appropriate clothing to be able to to handle that?
1: To that point, at opposite extremes, do you have a recommendation? Because I'm sure some of those races in Hawaii you've been in really warm, high humidity. Maybe how that impacted your hydration or nutrition plan would be interesting to know. And then when you were out on that five-degree day, what you did to protect yourself then as well?
0: <laughs> Rain as fast as I could, so it'd be as over as crazy <laughs> That's good, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I just wore enough clothes to stay as warm as I could. My hands get cold really quick, so I need mm-hmm. to always make sure that like on a cold day that I have enough gloves or mittens on. I think one of the Biggest pieces of advice is to train for the weather that you're going to be competing in. So in Hawaii, a great example, it's the Labor Day race. I, in Colorado, we don't have humidity. Mm-hmm. So it might get warm, it might get above 100 degrees here, but it's dry. So I was wearing long sleeves, sometimes even a sweatshirt in the summer in the couple of weeks leading up to that race when I was doing the full marathon. So I could kind of acclimate my body to what the humidity would feel like. Uh, And I feel like that helped a lot. So it really depends if you're going to be racing in somewhere cold or somewhere warm or humid to just be, um, to try to get the body prepared for that. Maybe that's a few more treadmill runs just to get some warm weather. Or some warm conditions in before a warm weather race. If you're in a cold climate, uh, that type of preparation, and then just being consistent with hydration is really important. Consistency is is really key in a lot of things. Nutrition and hydration is one of them. If it is warm and humid, you need to make sure you're like hydrating more after running, so that you're maintaining your like consistency in terms of your hydration state. So. I think those are kind of the, a few helpful hints. And my college coach had, or a coach I had previously had me drink Pedialyte like the night mm. before to try to help with hydration. Uh, that helps some people. I don't think it particularly helped or hurt me, but I would still do that before a hot and humid marathon.
1: Yeah, good tips. And I've done the Pedialyte. That did help for me in a really humid condition. You just moved up to Fort Collins, correct? I did. It's like a
0: southern Fort Collins, so we're 45-50 minutes from Boulder, so I'm still with
1: Jonesy and the Boulder Harriers, and I just have a little bit of a longer commute to get in. I haven't been up to Fort Collins. I've heard great things about it, and it seems like Boulder, Fort Collins, the whole area, from a a climate standpoint, there's a lot of great days to, to run from your perspective as a meteorologist, if you could pick a place in the world where you could live and train in your ideal conditions, where would the McCandless family be moving?
0: (laughs) It's a great question. Uh, There's probably places in California that have the most consistent weather, so like a Santa Barbara probably has very... Consistent quality weather for great training and great access to trails and tracks. Um, I think that that would probably be a great location. Uh, different times of the year have big benefits. So there's times of the year here where it's absolutely perfect, and I wouldn't trade it. You're high altitude, it's dry, it's nice and warm but also like Phoenix in January can be a great location to train. So I think California is probably the most consistent answer on average across the year. But if you could just, you know, work remotely for the rest of your life and bounce around and not have a specific home, you could probably take advantage of different climates throughout the US during
1: the year. Yeah, that's a little more realistic now for some folks, uh, but Santa Barbara, that Mediterranean climate, that is a beautiful spot. Last year. You've been an Ultra athlete for a lot of years. The low heel to toe drop, wide toe box, foot shape made Ultra unique in a time when a lot of shoes were very similar. In recent years, the technology for racing shoes has shifted dramatically to the super shoes with carbon fiber plates. I saw a comment you made that this technology may make racing more about how we respond to technology rather than always who is the best runner. Could you weigh in on the debate of how the new shoe technology affects competition? Not asking you to maybe call out any other brand, but just your opinion on the overall discussion of uh, where we're headed with uh, racing footwear.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a great question. It's a very, very hard question. Um, one of the things that I struggle with, and I'm going to go back to CIM, was that race was not a five week build up. It wasn't a five month build up. It was a five year build up to have that level of a breakthrough. The issue that I have with the, the super shoot category as a whole is that there's so many fundamental changes that happen with the biomechanics of going to such a high stack height shoe and having the carbon fiber plate that certain people get a much bigger response to wearing that shoe than other people. And we've now not only pushed forward marathoning times, we've also kind of like reshuffled performance. So you could have the same training and the same fitness and two different people have two vastly different improvements in their performance from these shoes. And I personally just don't like that because I think it takes away from the purity of the sport is that it's that consistent hard work rather than you can go out and spend almost $300 and get a shoe that changes your biomechanics, that improves efficiency, in what I think is kind of an unnatural way. Um, That said, I'm not the arbitrator of reason. That goes to World Athletics and USA Track and Field, and they've deemed these shoes to be legal. So I think, you know, brands are catching up and we're getting closer to a level playing field. But we've had several years where athletes were not on a level playing field, and there's this gigantic improvement. And I'm glad I had a breakthrough before this happened because that came from a ton of hard work, having a bunch of ups and downs in racing and learning before I finally executed. If I have a next breakthrough and I have a super shoe on, it doesn't matter how much of a breakthrough it's gonna be. The question will be how much of that came from an advancement in technology. And I think that's just like a a hard thing about the sport now is like, can you really compare yourself to your past self Mm. when you've changed what's on your feet? And it's just a really challenging time. And we're now seeing it on the track too. All of a sudden, you know, American records are being set left and right. Everyone's, you know, having incredible times and it's just, It's just a big shift and it's still kind of ongoing, although I do think we're kind of on the tail end of getting back to that new normal of what performance is.
1: Fair perspective. And I agree, potentially on the track, it could be even more dramatic. With that said, the governing bodies have had a little more time now to get ahead of it than they did with some of the prototypes that came out early on. You look at your 2017 CIM performance, there were some people at that time who had access to some of these shoes and a lot of people who did not. Athletes and brands playing catch-up, but I believe you made a really significant point that it is, once again, as you mentioned earlier on, about the consistency of years of work. You know, at the end of the day, that your 212 was a product of that. Anyone who goes out and buys a new pair of shoes can't expect to suddenly be a 212 guy without all that effort that you put in. Tyler, awesome to talk to you. Love hearing your stories and your perspective. And we're excited to see what you have in store for the future this fall, maybe in a big marathon. Three-time Olympic trials qualifier, correct? That is correct. And is number four in the back of your head for a potential goal down the road?
0: (laughs) I don't ever see like retirement entering my mind. I feel like running is kind of like a lifelong pursuit of, you know, trying to be as good as you can be. And I'm. thankful I'm still on the upswing. I'm young enough to be improving. At some point, I'll probably not be improving anymore, but um, yeah, I want to qualify for a fourth and hopefully a fifth, and who knows how, you know, how hard the standard is and how I age, but I definitely want to be competing at more Olympic trials.
1: That's tremendous. We'll be pulling for you on your way there. Tyler McCainless, thank you so much for sharing some time with us.
0: Yeah, thanks again for having me on.